uh, if I were to compare myself to some kind of animal in the biological world, I'd say I'm a planaria. So that's the two-headed worm, right? Who kind of is always sensing where to go, depending on where the salt is. Hey, hello, and welcome to Architecting. This is a show about architects, about the people and the stories behind the buildings and the images. And with our very interconnected international world that we live in, this per show will be purposefully local and narrow. We're only going to be focusing on the Colorado community of designers. So my name is Adam Wagner. I'm a Denver-based architect. I'm married to an architect. I have two architecture degrees and I've worked for a dozen different architecture firms in three different countries. But for the last five years, I've been rooted in Denver where I work at Open Studio Architecture and teach at the University of Colorado Denver. I really love uh, connecting with other architects and learning from their experiences. And now I'm broadcasting these stories with the goal of creating a stronger local community. So that brings us to today to a special guest, to someone who I haven't met before, but I've heard a lot about, and my conversation with her did not disappoint. So we have on Nan Anderson, who founded and Andrews and Anderson Architects in 1990, which later became Anderson Mason, uh, Anderson Hollis Architects. She has been a pillar of the Colorado architecture community ever since. Her firm has been awarded the AIA Colorado Mentoring Firm of the Year in 2002, the AIA Colorado Firm of the Year Award in 2011, and the Denver Firm of the Year Award in 2013. Nan herself was awarded the prestigious AIA Colorado Architect of the Year Award in 2018 and made a fellow in the AIA as well. So now Nan and her husband Dave Anderson are transitioning away from their firm and they're starting a new venture with their daughter Elsa who also joins our conversation. So we talk about this new project that they're involved in, a new exciting venue space in Leadville they call the Yes Space. So I really enjoyed uh, my time meeting with and, and talking with Nan and hearing her stories and I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks. Nan. Adam, how are you? Good. How's your day going? Pretty good. Yeah. I was just on um, some reviews at CU. So I got to do that and then jump over here. Is that harder to do via Zoom? Um, you know, in some ways it's in some ways it's kind of easier. It's a, like you it's a little more curated, I feel like, from the students where you know they kind of put one image up at a time. Oh, and sure. You're able to get um, jury members from different places you know uh mm -hmm. not just here but yeah how's that's, that's fun you know that way you can uh, the only thing that you're missing is where they're putting their hands or how they're standing on their feet or all those presentation skills right yeah and and it's like you can only focus on what they're showing you you know you say no no go go back go, yeah. i want to see that or i want to but yeah. um yeah what's that behind you i love that that painting you have it's a nice Oh yeah, that's a uh, that's a California artist, Deladier, and I love it because I it's um, very similar to the style by a, a famous artist who I couldn't afford. So this is one that I could afford. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Stephen Korn is the is the real guy. Oh, okay, yeah, it it's a it's a real art now, right? The Zoom background uh, and uh, what how you're presenting your space and. That's have, right. We could be anywhere. We could do anything. Yeah. And what I love is looking up people's noses or down over their foreheads or whatever. You know, some people just don't have it quite dialed in yet. Exactly. Really nice haircut. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a little shorter <laughs> today. That's going to translate really well for the podcast. Yeah. Be my haircut. But. So what is what has your day been like today? What's a, a day of Nan Anderson? Um. Well, today was a little atypical because I had to make a lot of calls to various people. I've, I've been working on projects, literally working on projects. So I'm uh, up here kind of in, in Leadville creating a, a sculpture of a building right now. And it's cold, so I needed a good excuse to make phone calls instead of being outside in 12 degree weather. So thank huh. you. 
what so what's a sculpture of a building versus a a model or versus a real building or sure yeah well the um so we have this 120 year old shed on site and it's open to the south so it has really lovely temperature on the inside during the all sorts of seasons and it used to be a lumber shed so i'm turning it into a kind of a hangout space are you familiar with the artist louise nevelson no i'm not she made these, she was very popular in the 50s and 60s, made these fabulous con constructs out of leftover architectural pieces and parts. So I'm kind of channeling Louise Nevelson and I'm using leftover pieces of lumber from our projects up here to create kind of a trump loyal of a lumber yard. Oh, nice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, yeah, I want to really thank you for, for coming on here. The, you're, sure. you're, you're, for multiple reasons, but you're a very special guest because you're the first guest that that hasn't known me and so you're taking more of a, a leap and this is the first time we're meeting so it's, but you hang out with nice. good people so i have to trust them right <laughs> well you know i yeah i you know i put a little preview of you coming on the show yesterday and since then i've i have at least three or four people say nan is my favorite person this is i'm so excited <laughs> for it so you're, you're well, the very popular person well yeah. let's see if we can disabuse them of that today <laughs> Uh, that sounds good. Uh, so I like to start with just this this question of like, if you had to explain yourself, introduce yourself in about two lines, who 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 would you be? Who, who what would you say? Wow, oh, that's such an existential question. Uh, because you think about well, the easy re response to that would be well, what are my roles in life, right? Like. Mm -hmm. I'm an architect, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm, I'm a grandmother, all those good things. But really, if you ask who, who am I at my core? Oof. God. I don't know if we need to get that deep. <laughs> not, not yet, maybe. Maybe we'll get there. But and that's okay. okay, well, let's just say this. I'm a people person who loves adventure, and I found the perfect career to meld those two aspects. Nice, I love that. So let's talk about that. So how did you how did you get into this? Where where did you grow up? Where did you come from? I grew up in the St. Louis area. I went to school back east and then went to school in the Midwest and then went to school in Colorado. I was a professional student for a while, but I learned some great lessons along the way. So those of you who are out there listening who can't decide yet what they're doing in their 20s, there's still hope for you. Nice. But I was actually on a long drive. I, I had a my my initials are Bomfama. So I had a BA, I had a master's in fine arts, and I finally had a master's in architecture because uh, I was driving from California to Colorado one day to see friends. And it was one of those epiphanies of what do you do with um, with an interest in business, a love of art, and of an interest in seeing how things are built? What's what's the profession that winds all that up neatly? So you know, I figured out it was architecture. I applied for architecture school and here I am. Never looked back. So which one came first then? Was it, did you go to Wash U? Is that your first degree or? It was, that was my master's in fine arts. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so, so what... I, have a, I have a master's in sculpture, which mm. really taught me, um, you know, the, and I'm sure artists out there can relate to this. One of the wonderful things about being an artist is that you get to make your own stuff, right? And no one tells you what to yeah. do. That's what we have to compromise as architects. So as an artist, I was doing that, but I was also living a very singular life because that's the nature of art. So it didn't appeal to my social side. It certainly gave me that kind of inward look and, and self-reliance that knowing that, yeah, I can, I can spend some time with myself and, and I'm okay with that. And I think as architects, we need to be able to do, do that as well. And we need to be able to develop a sense of humor about what we create and also know that hmm. the next one will always be better. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to be sitting with the one and say, ah, this, this one has to be better. This, this is so bad. And this is the last project I'm ever going to get. And I'm, there's never going to be another yeah. one. And yeah. uh, I have to nail this one. Yeah, you have to. So you're telling me that there's it. one after this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe someday, someday down the road, you can look back and say, "Yeah, that that one was really the best one." 
<laughs> you always want to kind of keep moving forward that way. And I think that's in part what art does for you. Right. So you, so you had the, you had that degree first and how long were you doing art before you went to architecture school then? Yeah, about two years. So literally I was living my twenties in two year spurts. I owned an H and R block, believe it or not. So <sighs> I learned business and taxes for two years. I went to Wash U for my MFA. I did sculpture. I worked in the nonprofit world for two years and then I went into architecture school and because I didn't have an undergraduate degree in architecture I, that was a three-year stint. And that that was at CU or? Yeah that was at yeah. CU. Yeah. So how did you decide to go there? I have always loved Colorado. Anyone who's driven across the plains and had their parents say I'll give a quarter to the first kid who sees the mountains Right. Falls in love with the mountains. <laughs> I always I knew I wanted to be here, and this was the obvious choice for school then too. Yeah. So, so at that time, obviously it was at Boulder, right? Um, no, it was actually at Denver. So it was. Oh, it was. UCD. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, so the master's program has, I think, for the most part, maybe since the seventies, been at the uh, at, in Denver. Oh. So where was where what? Where was the school in Denver? What, it it, it wasn't was in the same building. The, it was in the Bromley building um, that actually used to be owned by DHM, I think, hmm. right across, right next to uh, the DCPA, you know, like in the next block over. Oh, okay. I guess now, now it's over on the campus, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. An yeah. In, in old uh, office building, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So what was what was kind of going on at the school that time? Um, what, what was there kind of a feeling of a direction architecturally uh, and, and kind of professors and people that you gravitated towards or did you do your time and get out and get started? That's that's a really interesting question. Can I can I turn that back on you for just a second? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that from because you teach so do you think that there is a culture that is kind of expected or that you're kind of brought into or that's already established when you start to teach? Because I, I haven't been on that side, so I really don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there's definitely a, a kind of a, a, a trend within CU here and it's, it's kind of this mountain regionalism, you know, that mm -hmm. most of the school is going with and you get some people kind of coming in and doing different things and, um, but, but yeah, I think it, it has a direction in that way. And, and, you know, I know in some schools, you know, there's a, there's kind of diverging trends that you choose one side or the other, or, um, but I didn't know what your experience mm -hmm. was at that time with it. Yeah. I wouldn't say that there was a, a singular sensibility in terms of design aesthetic. Um, and what was interesting was we had a really diverse group of professors. So we had someone who had survived Nazi Czechoslovakia we had someone who had worked in a in uh, for LRB Beckett in Minneapolis, I think it was. We had people from kind of all over the country, so we had some really different perspectives. There definitely wasn't a sense of regionalism, but that that kernel of regionalism was starting to be discussed at the time, which was pretty exciting. Yeah, I will say that what what happened with each one of the classes is they developed their own culture, their own kind of uh, work ethic, their own sense of self. And we found that, which I, I am a true believer in, by the time you get into a master's program, you darn well better know what you want to do in life and that you're convicted. So if you're not, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be there. So I think mm -hmm. that we learned as much actually from each other as we did from our professors in some ways. Interesting. Kind of fun. So did you, was it what you expected it would be? You know, you had that very clear vision of sculpture and art and, and it's like architecture is the thing that, that will bring these things together. And did it, did it do that for you? Was it surprising in school or? Yeah. <laughs> did, I expect, did, I, did I expect to work till three and four in the morning? <laughs> no. <laughs> did I expect to put, to pin stuff up and have it slou slaughtered? No. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was all new and, and different for me and really fun. But um, actually, we had a little bit of that with, with 
sculpture too with my MFA. But it was it was just such a new world of learning for me. So I didn't go in with any pre pre disposition. I wasn't the kind of kid who grew up thinking, oh, I want to be an architect. I'm going to play with Lincoln logs and do all that. I just knew that I, I wanted to be a sponge and learn from everyone around me and UCD delivered. Nice. So then was it a, what was next after graduating? Was it a pretty clear path or is that when it got more bumpy? No, actually I, um, I graduated at the peak of a recession. That was a great time. Hmm. And somehow, seems to happen a lot, yeah. yeah. Somehow got a job in a in a small firm, and and um, it just kind of grew from there. But after all of two or three or maybe four, you know, yeah, about four years. Uh, so by the time I had my my license, I was ready to launch my own firm. But luckily, along the way, I worked for men, all of whom were really supportive, all of whom took me and threw me out into the middle of the deep end and said, okay, Nan, swim. Mm. And I loved it. I loved that kind of, of uh, just being given that kind of entitlement. Now, chances are our clients were thinking, oh my God, please do something with this young girl. She needs to be <laughs> controlled. They shouldn't have unleashed her on us, but I really appreciated the opportunity. Did, with your graduating class, how many women were there? Was there? It was surprising. Yeah. So, you know, if you had gone back a few years before us, it would have been different, but we were probably even over 50% women. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 So th this is where, even though I graduated in the eighties, I, I don't share that, that experience of having ever, well, I shouldn't say ever, I was never uh, held back because of my of being a woman. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I did have a guy one time come up to me who I was about to do his taxes. And he asked me point blank, can a woman do as good a job on my taxes as a man? I said, yes, absolutely. He said, but I'm not going to do as good on yours, but yeah, I could right, yeah. if I wanted. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what, so what was the firm you worked for? When you got out? Um, Jonathan Saber, who Jonathan Saber. has done some, he, he did primarily residential work. I think he's actually still in business, but just a great guy. One of those, those people who absolutely, well, I remember him detailing a tie rod on a chimney one time. And I thought, oh my God, this, nice. <laughs> and, you know, certain types of pens and, and only plastic leads and yeah, it was wild. But I learned how to lay sheets out. I learned how to detail from him, just as with Bob Johnson, who is Johnson Riley, Riley Johnson, uh, who I worked with or worked for for a couple of years. He taught me how to program, how to sit down mm. in a room with people and say, okay, what do you really want this space to look and feel like? How do we get there? What are your concerns? Let's hear your voice. You've not yeah, said wow. anything. And it was he who came up to one of my drawings one time and said, well, okay, Nan, so you figured out that you can fit all these people in this space, but it doesn't sing. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is so true. Mm. That's the hard thing, right? That's yeah, the ultimate that's kind of sponge position of that programming exercise and then trying to export that sing that song right that yeah yeah uh, yeah how do you get from that that mush yeah. all that verbal mush to something really fun and and responsive right I really built a career on trying to be responsive to what clients are, are asking for hmm. so then what was that transition like in that decision of okay i'm going to start my own my own firm that was a, another dumb idea so graduating <laughs> in, in the middle of a recession mistake number one but i lived through it uh, number two was second kind of downturn is when i decided to start my own firm so i made the lavish sum of three dollars and 15 cents an hour on my first project nice i called up a friend who i'd gone to grad school with and i said hey she had just been laid off from uh john carney and associates he went he moved up to um it, you know, had a very successful firm up in Jackson Hole. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I 
called her up and I said, do you want to start a farm? And she said, yeah, I'm not doing anything else this week. So <laughs> there, there we went and we never looked back. So what was that first project then? It was a project down in Manitou Springs. We did a, um, it was a preservation project trying to help them design guidelines for their, for their town. Something we had never done before, but what the heck. <laughs> so how did, yeah, how'd you get, how'd you get it? How'd you get the project? Well, interestingly, and this is, this is kind of a marketing, um, a, a little marketing secret. I think that people like to work with people who either look like them or think like them. Hmm. So if uh, we just lucked out with some clients who were kind of quirky, kind of fun, and looked at two young women, and uh, one of whom, not I, but my partner, who'd almost choked on a hamburger on the way down to the interview. And they said, well, you know, I think we can work with these gals. So we got the job. Wow. So what was your partner's name? Deborah Andrews. So we Deborah were first Andrews. Andrews and Anderson. Oh, okay. And so you got, you got that project. Did you, did you have a space you're working out of? How, how quickly did you start hiring yes. people? Yeah, mistake number three. Thank you, Thank you Adam. You're this bringing is, up all the good stuff. I'm just trying to learn all the lessons here and uh, see how many of I, I've already broken, I guess. But yeah. so, so our first office was actually in our house in Golden, and it was in, in a real room, so it was set aside. We weren't working on the kitchen table or anything. We had two drafting tables set up. The cat would sit on one of the drafting boards. The children would bang on the door and scream, mommy, mommy. <laughs> it, it was a little so you had you had children at this point. Yeah, yeah. I had one and a, yeah, I had a three and a one-year-old. Wow. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good timing once again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so it, really, obviously, if I can do this, anybody can do this. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, so, um, okay, so you're, you're working on your home and, and you have the one project. And then how, how, what, how quickly did other projects start coming in? Well, that second year we made a lavish sum of like $45,000, $46,000. So oh, I thought yeah, we were nice. doing pretty well. Yeah. That first year was a little, we started in October and that 315 was our, that first year. Um, so the second, the second year we got a job for um, DIA. It was actually doing a preservation project, kind of mapping out all the historic sites that DIA was about to gobble up. And because we were women and they needed to fill a quota at the time, we, we got that job. So the, the project manager who oversaw us, oversaw our work and the roundup of all the prairie dogs out at DIA. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> she had quite the skill set too. Uh, <laughs> but we had fun. So was this, I mean, you're talking about preservation. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's a, a big specialty now for you, right? But you're saying you hadn't really done that before. Was right. this, was this an e kind of an easy thing to understand what you're doing or every day you're coming in and not You know, I had an undergraduate that. degree that included a kind of a minor in history. So I could always hmm. speak the, the lingo. There was certainly a lot to learn, but to me, it's so exciting to be able to blend architecture with history. So not all of my, my work has been preservation, but I'd say probably half of it over the years has mm. been. And it's because right. it just gives you such a wonderful connection to place. Yeah. So, so did it just kind of start snowballing from, from that DIA project then? And you yeah, finally I, moved out I of your home? Yeah, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> we can't see that in a podcast, but it's a very roller coaster uh, curve. Yeah, a, yeah, the trajectory was up, generally <laughs> speaking. Yeah. But um, yeah, as any architect knows, the you don't always just build one great project after the next. You have to take some real um, disappointments along the way. You have to learn. In fact, we wrote into our project manual for our office that that uh, grieving was optional after you found out that you didn't get a certain project. Because, and actually my husband who joined us and in our firm really didn't want that in our project manual. He thought that that was a sign of weakness, but any woman knows you gotta, you gotta grieve a little when you don't get the big ones. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so 
so you you married an architect yeah mm -hmm. it was yeah. i i also married an architect i know that that feeling uh makes for interesting dinner conversations right there's it? only kind of one conversation yeah i yeah. <laughs> i i found the valid victorian of our class and i held onto her coattails ever since but <laughs> Uh, okay, can I ask you a question about that, Adam? Yeah, because it's so it's so rare that I get to talk to people who are in my in my same boat. Uh, how do you complement your? Do your skill sets complement each other? And if so, how? Yeah, they they do they do pretty well. I I um, she's very organized and very um, structured in a nice way, and is more a little bit more geared to like the design development kind of stage. Project. Mm -hmm. She's right behind me, so I need to watch what I'm saying. But okay, uh, she, but uh, and and I'm a little bit more geared to the kind of schematic design, um, and right. so so we play off each other pretty well. But we we have had a we had a firm together, kind of like you. We we graduated in '09 and started a firm uh, in the recession. Great time. Great time. And 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 we didn't even have an extra room in our apartment. We only had one room in our apartment, and we were working out of it. But uh so we had to learn early on how to kind of work together um and yeah it was it was really rocky you know and it's it's tough uh but you know we we kind of kind of figured out and and now okay, so, so what was the what was the biggest compromise that you had to make that you're still thinking about dang i still wanted to do it my way you know i was just gonna say happen? that the the biggest the biggest arguments we ever get into are about sort of a turnbuckle type detail on a chimney right like it's we're building this uh, uh, sliding ladder for this loft right now, and we got into a big argument about how you know how that joint comes together and how if we screw it or if we dowel it, put it in with a dowel, you know. So that I, I feel your your pain there, but so how so uh, what I'll put that back on you guys. So with you and Dave, what's the what's the complimenting? Well, first of all, let's skills. be really honest. Dave married me because I was the only woman he knew who could carry a, a, a bunk of shingles up to up a ladder to get onto a roof. So <laughs> he had uh, he had a lot of skills from uh, being in the Peace Corps, actually teaching oh, carpentry. So he has this really tactile, really understand. Like he would totally get off on your discussion about turnbuckles or, <laughs> or ladders or whatever, and. Um, as would I, to tell you the truth, but I can come up with an idea and he instantly goes to the details. Mm. And then that is how the, so we kind of go back and forth. We pull in to a disc, to really fine details, and, but then we have to kind of zoom out and look at the big picture. And we really have learned over the years not to, not to fight over too much. We did, we, when we were first, when we were living in Denver and um, I was pregnant with our first child, we were designing a house together, the house that we would eventually live in. And he was working on his drafting board. I was working on my drafting board. Mm. Needless to say, the two houses did not look even remotely alike. And then along comes Elsa, our oldest, and we have to change one of the drafting tables into a diaper changing <laughs> station. So suddenly the Literally, the designs start coming together. Uh, <laughs> we have cool. Elsa to thank for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, because that, cause that's super easy to design with an infant around. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no distractions. Yeah. <laughs> so then what was that like? So at, at one point, your your partner left, right? And, mm -hmm. and Dave came in. So what, what was that transition like for you? Um, well, I always thought that that Deborah would come back. <laughs> she she uh, was she got married and then she started having kids and then she realized that uh, it just wasn't for her. And by then, uh, the firm was kind of growing. So we at one point had the thought that wouldn't it be great if the three of us would kind of rotate jobs? Like one would be the design principal, one be, mm. would be the managing principal and one would be the kind of in charge of construction, CA type stuff. But we realized pretty quickly that we had some innate skills and that it probably worked better to work to our skill set as opposed to arbitrarily playing merry-go-round. So when Deborah left and she had wonderful kind of schematic design skills, as sounds like you all have figured out, uh, there was kind of, there was kind of a hole there. So we, we, 
had to figure out how to fill it and found some really good people and have grown the firm with really good people over the years who bring those various skill sets to the table. Yeah, because at that, so at that point, how many people, how many employees did you have? We probably had about four or five. Okay. And now, I mean, now you have what, 20 or 30? Yeah, 20. So was that, was that a fairly hard transition then from being able to kind of keep your hands on everything, right? In that, in that kind of role that you had to when you start growing and, and that skill set has to morph, I'm guessing? That's a really interesting question. I've kind of wondered, and we've talked over the years as to at what point do you kind of stop being more of a designer, more of in the moment and more of a manager of people. Right. And I kind of think it's a personal choice because even with, with 20 people, I, I'm still in the weeds. I, mm. I'm still loving looking at sitting down with somebody and working through details or kind of zooming out and programming with people or having those initial conversations. I, I think it's, it's really just a personal choice. And if you gravitate toward the more, like maybe just you're really a great marketing person or you're so you you bring the work in or you're the person who loves the tinkering with the business aspects of it that's great um yeah I so, think you, yeah you follow your muse so it seems like it's it's really about finding those other parts to plug into the firm and right. and to, to pick that and so i mean like because now you have you have two other partners in the firm right uh right yep and and so there's Liz Hollis, right? And mm-hmm. so and when did, and, and Wells, right? Wells Square. Yes. Right. Uh, when did, when did uh, Liz come in? <laughs> 27, 28 years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> really early she, on. She was one of the four or at least, yeah. 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 And this is, this is also, if anyone's listening out there about how to become a principal, first of all, you, you, uh, Go after whatever firm you want to work for. And you say, I want to work for you. And the firm brushes you off and says, you know, thanks, love you, but we don't have time, right? We don't need people right now. And then you call up a few months later and you say, hey, how I noticed you're doing this. I really want to work for you. And you say, fine. So in other words, you keep at it if you really believe. And Liz really believed for whatever reason. <laughs> she was crazy, I guess. And, and then um, you just kind of show your your capability from there. It's really important to be your own advocate because even though, let's face it, principals are really busy people and the person who gets ahead is the person who says, I want to do this. Right. So for instance, there was a gal in our office a few years ago, um, pretty young at the time, just out of undergrad. She went off, got her architecture degree at WashU, came back and is now working in a larger firm in Denver and still young. And she spoke to some of the principals one day and they said, so, you know, what do you, what are you thinking you'd like to do in this, in this firm as you grow? And she looked straight at the CFO and she said, I want your job. Nice. <laughs> I can't tell you years, how rare yeah. that is that someone can articulate it that clearly. Oh, and I think that's so strong, right? This the idea of intentionality. You know, we all strive for it within architecture, but then within your own career and designing your career and your path. But you know, I struggle with that. Uh, I feel like I'm fairly good at that. But then the idea of how much how much do you leave open, right? And to right. to those turns and twists and turns that you don't see coming or um, yeah, so I well, guess, the, and yeah. So it, because I was looking at kind of the arc of your career as well, how much of that would you say was by design and how much was kind of goal setting and how much was purely accidental? Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of luck there, but it's, but it's that idea that I mostly don't want to work for people and I f- try to figure out ways to do that. And sometimes I, I find I I know I'm bad at this and I need to find that person to make me better at that. And, um, but yeah, a lot of luck. Like that, that first project that we had we graduated and my vegetarian uncle was starting a hot dog restaurant and that was our first project, <laughs> you know, and it's, 
it's those sort of things that, that you, don't, you, you don't expect about you know the, uh, we actually did we had we, we had an unlimited uh, account there at the restaurant when we were done but uh, it was it was really good hot dogs uh, but yeah so so then so with so from that from that point I'm interested like the did you sit down and have that vision for your for your firm and and have you know you talked about that kind of document was that a thing that still holds true or does it get changed every few years or so you know i'm a little there there's some great strategic planners out there and i'm a big believer in strategic plans but uh if i were to compare myself to some kind of animal in the biological world i'd say i'm a planaria so that's the two-headed worm, right? <laughs> Who kind of is always sensing where to go, depending on where the salt is. And that's kind of how my career has evolved. It's like, I kind of knew the direction I want, wanted to go in, but it was also a sensing, like this feels good to me. So let's do more of this. And to me, the thing that always uh, drew me tighter and tighter and that I ultimately did more and more of was working with the National Park Service. Mm. So we were unbelievably uh, fortunate to get a contract. They, they issue five-year contracts and only a few in the country. And we've had one since 2003. Wow. So we just, it's, it melds for me that, that, uh, that very people-oriented side with the adventure. And you work with clients who are mission-driven in places that are indescribable, that sometimes only we as architects and a few staff people in the park ever get to see. So that kind of, I knew that that's where I wanted to, to be eventually. And it was just step after step that got me there. So what's, what's one of those most memorable projects with the park department that you've worked with? We, for the better part of 13 years, we uh, did a $40 million rehabilitation of Mini Glacier Hotel oh, wow. up in Glacier National Park. It's where I had gone as a kid, so I had memories of it. It's where my parents had honeymooned, so they had memories of it. So being able to connect to a place like that in a setting like that was just magical. To say nothing of the grizzly bear hikes and the... <sighs> The skinny dipping that we did in the lakes up there, and you know all the great things that you do on a on a project like that. I mean that I you know it's such a beautiful building, uh, and I look at that and you say thirteen years, and I look inside and it's those huge timbers and it's like it's like the bark's still on right, and it, I mean it looks great now, but what all did you have to what all was done to it i mean and what were this, what were those struggles what was the biggest well, struggle on there okay so let's let's be honest about the 50s because this building was built in 1916 right so just at the dawn of the 20th century and the 50s they had decided enough is enough we can't run a hotel like this in such a inhospitable climate we want to sell it so a modernist came in and said, well, the way you sell it is you paint everything white. Mm. So they took all oh, these wow. magnificent natural wood finishes and, and hallways and painted everything white. So you felt like you were in kind of a, an insane asylum, maybe mm. a little bit. And so we had to kind of, and then they brought in, you know, the antler chandeliers and they took out all the fabulous lanterns that had been imported from Japan and they covered up this magnificent helical staircase. So you kind of start to peel the onion, you look at old photographs, you dig in closets, you find out what the building used to be and that's what you start trying to get to sing again. Wow. Huh. So we did a lot of, but <laughs> there's needless to say in a climate like that and um, it's really rugged. So many glacier is only open for about three and a half months out of the year. They board it up in the winter. In every spring they come in and because there's a tiny little pinhole in some board, they've got four feet of snow on the other side of that pinhole in the building. <sighs> so there's a lot of damage that happens to those 
structures over time. The wind works on it, the water works on it, the snow, certainly snow loads. So we were repairing, for instance, those timbers, which come down there three feet in diameter by the wow. time they get to the first floor, had rotted in kind of a parabolic curve on the inside. So you couldn't see it from the outside, but it was completely rotted on the inside. So those had to be support, temporarily supported five-story column timbers while we took out the bottom part of it and put in a new one and made it all look like it was meant to wow, be. Wow, for each of those. Yeah. 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 Huh. It was, it was a so working with hand and glove with a fabulous structural engineering team, which I have to say, the one of the things that has really blessed my career is working with the most remarkable, not only staff, but also the consultants. And we've mm. worked with the same people for some of them 25 years. Who, who so are they? You just you get to JBA for structural. Yeah. I mean, you get to the point where you're, you're vacationing together, you're completing <sighs> each other's sentences, you know what your weaknesses are. So a mechanical, your mechanical engineer will ask you if you thought about this particular detail. It's, it's really, it's fabulous when you get to that point of, of trust with your, your consultants. Yeah. And so, um, Talking about another project. So, what? Tell me about uh, Moose Workshop. What's what's that project? <laughs> it's, it's how you get a design award <laughs> by not using the word garage. Garage. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, we thought it was a little a little too pretentious to call it an artist studio, although we do use it for some of our artwork. But it's it's um, it the idea for it came from looking at stacked lumber. So if you look at like an old silo, a wooden silo, it's nothing but two by fours stacked on top of each other and then mm. screwed through. So we thought we could get this fabulous snow fence wood from Wyoming. We could rip one side off of it and expose that still beautiful new wood, stain that, and then start to stack it. Well, our structural engineer, God love him, Bob Hunnis said, you know, that's just not gonna stand up. And we said, no, 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 come on, really, Bob. So investing in probably 10 miles worth of timber locks, you know, 16 inch timber locks, we knitted that entire structure together, timber lock oh. by timber lock, eight inches on center. Wow. <laughs> and and so 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 is that at your house or something yeah, or it is, yeah it oh, okay is. nice yeah. it's a it's also entirely sustainable because there's no heat in it and <laughs> it's it has since it's weathered wood it really leaks like a sieve too and, and environmentally sustainable but not yeah what we're looking at and, and the reason i'm kind of pivoting toward more of that kind of aesthetic right now is that we spend so much of our architectural career trying to make everything so perfect. Mm. And I've been kind of enchanted recently by things that aren't perfect. Mm. Like if you look at um, the way a structure that's left out in a field, a barn or a shed or a house, and how it just kind of settles over time, I think that there's some poetry in that. And I love to to kind of take those ideas and abstract them into something that's totally new, totally sustainable and very structurally solid. Right. So there's just some poetics in that that I, so, I find what, interesting. Yeah, I like, I like that a lot. Like, so what, what project would you say you've accomplished that best on, that most exemplifies that? Yeah, definitely the workshop explored okay. that. Yeah, uh, we're also, uh, our, project up here in Leadville, the slumber yard did that. It's new cabins that are kind of a, a, a teasing, happy blend of very clean, crisp, beautiful redwood and really trashy corrugated sheet metal roofing that we tore off of our roof. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I like you know, that. We, we just want to look at how you can reuse materials and accept the fact that with age comes some character 
And you don't have to plug every hole. You don't have to snip off every little piece of rust. You kind of let it be and, um, and it's okay. Right. So yeah, let's talk about that. So that, that's really interesting. This, this kind of shift, right? So you're, you're, you started a new company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is, yeah. And you're, yep. you're up there in Leadville and yeah. you're working with the, the baby on the drafting table. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> She's here. So what, what, what prompted that, that switch, uh, from. So, well, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we were transitioning out of Anderson Hallis and, uh, really the two partners, the two remaining partners are Liz Hallis and Wells Squire. Uh, Dave and I have completely sold our interest. We're just, mm. uh, kind of finishing up a couple of projects now, but I, I really am kind of, getting that yearning for hands-on again that I've always had because of my sculpture background. I love making my own mistakes and as opposed to pointing to a contractor and saying, couldn't you have done that better? <laughs> you know, I love the, the responsibility of that. So when we uh, decided to transition out, we thought, okay, let's become design builders, design build operators. And it's really super satisfying and so, yeah. humiliating and humbling. <laughs> you get to start over again. Yeah. <laughs> but was that a hard, was that a hard choice? You know, so many architects essentially die with their firm and I mean, but to, to, to kind of hand it over and move on. Is it you know, you look at so many wonderful, wonderful legacy firms in Denver over the years. And at first you think, wow, well, you know, we went that, for our firm too, but then over time you realize nothing lasts forever and you just kind of let that go. So if, 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 um, if a firm is still around in 10 years, so be it, but if it's, if it's absorbed by someone else, that's okay too. It's just part of the natural process, right? So we weren't the kind of people, I won't say that there, it doesn't come at some emotional cost, because it certainly does when you build something over 30 years to just say, okay, time to hand it, hand over the reins, you go. Yeah. But um, having made that decision, there's just a whole new world of possibility out there. And uh, the other thing that I'm, I'm really trying to explore with architecture is how can it be the place that kind of reintroduces civility and civil conversation back mm. into our public domain? Interesting. Well, is, is Elsa there with you? We want she to bring is. her in? Yeah. This, she's, this not, is she's not a year old. She's not a baby anymore. Not a baby she's anymore. Yeah. 33. I have my own babies. Own yeah. babies. Nice. Well, hi. <laughs> hi. Nice to meet you. This is good. This is, this is the first uh, couple, couple interview. And yeah. It, it's funny. I would have thought it would be with Dave, but it's good. It's with Elsa. So, yeah. <laughs> So, so he's, tell me about, well, go ahead. He's the guy who gets the work done. We just have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I like that. So tell me about this, the, yeah, the idea of the slumber yard and the, and the impetus for that and how it's come together. You want to talk about how we got here to begin with? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, um, I think Nan's talked a lot about creative process and definitely how the building was going to be used was quite a creative process. We had so many different ideas. And it was a lot of trial and error. Um, but ultimately, we knew that by bringing something new to Leadville, we wanted to be a part of Leadville. And we wanted to be uh, not just a part of the landscape of Leadville, but part of the cultural landscape and social landscape as well. So ultimately, that is what drove us towards creating a space where, where you can have those civil conversations. <laughs> Uh, but you can also get super weird and listen to really loud music and, you know, all aspects of human life are allowed here. So we call it the yes place. The yes, yes place. place. And, then, and then we thought, well, you know, if we really want people to stay here and enjoy more, we should offer lodging. So that's where the birth of the slumber yard idea came from. We kind of always knew that we wanted to do some kind of lodging here, but we should have done it first. <laughs> yeah but you know mistake number four right well, if, if that's okay. only four i know you yeah. i know you're up to more than that but oh yeah <laughs> uh, but so 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 explain it to me so what's the kind of like physical makeup of the because it's a kind of a complex right it is yeah. yeah so 
So freight is our 1884 train freight depot. It used to be part of the uh, Colorado and Southern Railway system. So, and it was a building that was falling down when we walked by it one day, fell in love with it. And there you go, you know, architects, buildings, what? Yeah. So we bought it and then it was like, okay, now we're the dog that caught the bus. What do we do with the bus? <laughs> that's when this idea came about that it's, it's uh, we wanted to kind of celebrate the industrial vibe of the place. We wanted to celebrate the, the pithy and, and scratchy hard scrabble culture of Leadville and adventure as well. And we wanted to create a place that people really felt comfortable coming to. It, nice. It's the freight is definitely the anchor building. It's the, yeah. uh, it's the showstopper of the whole property. So that's why we focused on it first. And it had all these other little outbuildings connected to it from when it was used as a uh, uh, lumber yard. Um, anyway, so it started with freight and then trying to save each one of the sheds or take down a shed or build 13 new sheds or <laughs> add another shed, you know, like everything, everything was building off of this singular kind of standalone piece right. um, to complement to complement freight. Uh, so every single little building is like, okay, well, we have freight. So what can this little building be that complements and is in, in, in discussion with the the main depot and that's very much where it comes back to art because we've treated this as kind of a canvas as opposed to um, having some kind of clear master plan it's more like mm. well once you get this piece done how do, how does that inform what the next piece should be and what is that conversation among the buildings that are on the site so it's been really kind of a, a discovery process for us and a surprise interesting our neighbors kind of a letting yeah kind of a letting go of of yeah. that master plan yeah, it can be yeah. Hard. so what has it been like uh designing this with your two architect parents uh what has it been like i well so i grew up being dragged to many a construction site <laughs> nice so yeah which were not theirs that, they were that very was, good at breaking into construction sites uh, nice just because they were curious um so I I always got to see these buildings being constructed and, and looking at them kind of try to read an historic building and discuss how they were going to bring it back to life. But then but then you move on to the next building. And my favorite part about this project, so I used to go and do meeting minutes or take photos or hold a tape measure. <laughs> and this time I got to do all those things, but also we get to run the building. So it's fantastic to be able to say, to be part of the discussion of building it, and then seeing how that discussion and all that intention actually translate to use of a building. Um, yeah, that, oh, that's just my favorite, favorite. And I love working with my family. Mm. I think that it, um, it comes with so much complexity and it definitely has built our relationship even further in ways that I think that parents and children don't often get that opportunity to do. Right. So it's given us a lot of opportunity to grow as a family. Yeah. Let's be honest though, when, when it's time for us to be kicked out, Elsa is the first to tell Dave and me, it's time for you guys to leave. Yeah. I'll take it from here. You don't know how to use that cash register. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. Stop, stop talking to the guests. You're giving them bad information. Don't give away all of our alcohol. <laughs> don't you have some drawings to make in the back? Yeah. 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 Uh, but, but one of the things that we did say, and I remember the day when Elsa and I were sitting in her house when we were, had just bought this and coming up with the idea that this is the guest place because we really wanted to embrace all the cultural um, groups of Leadville and beyond. And it has really delivered. So even to recently, when um, we sat down, Elsa sat down and I was overhearing this conversation, a woman came in with her daughter. Do you know what a quinceanera is? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've had a few quinceaneras here nice. and they're wild. They're, they go way beyond any wedding I've ever been to. And a mother and her daughter 
came in and said, we'd like to have our quinceanera hearing. And Elsa said, wonderful, so glad, we'll, we'd love to have you. Well, the next thing they said, well, we have a special request. Okay, what's that? Well, we have a, a horse and it's a dancing horse. <laughs> then we realized the dance, they wanted the dancing horse inside, but you know, here's a freight depot. There was ore on these floors. I was like, yes, so, yeah. yes. You only, you only turned 15 once. You, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we're gonna have a dancing horse. We're gonna have a dancing pony. We're gonna have fun. <laughs> Uh, I love that. It's like yes, a, um, it's, it's like a, an improvisational skit mm -hmm. translated into a business model yeah. where you have to say yes. Like that's how you keep the play going. And so yeah, okay. using, that, yes, using that idea is like, okay, you want, I, I have to say yes to that <laughs> and just see where it takes us. <laughs> So was that was that kind of what it was like growing up a little bit with two architects? Let's say yes and see where it takes us. And I mean, I'm I'm really I was going to ask you about this because I'm really interested, you know, just per, just selfishly, what my kids are going to turn out like with two architect parents. But there's was, there's hope, you, Adam. Do you think that there's it, it, was your childhood different or than other kids? And then kind of where did you where did your profession end up from that? Oh, well, you, I was definitely. Uh, my grandfather is also an architect, oh, wow. John Anderson. He was the president of AIA. Wow. Anderson Masondale. Anderson Masondale. Oh, and um, okay. so I, so it, there were plenty of people who asked, oh, so are you all going to be, I have a brother, are you all going to be architects? And I was adamant that I was not going to be that. Only, I think I would have made a great architect. <laughs> I got so much schooling before even needing to pay for it. Um, but that I definitely needed to kind of carve my own path. And I'm glad I did that because it also allowed me to bring other skills back to the family. Um, so that, so it might've been a little painful for them when I was trying to do the rebellion, but it definitely was the right choice. And um, anyway, I think that, you know, every person is different. Every architect I've ever met right. has their own strengths and their own qualities and one of nan and dave's qualities is that because they were running their business together they talked about architecture and business a lot so a lot of our dinner conversations were about um you know we have this client what would you do in this situation or what do you think about walsenberg <laughs> you know like they were constantly asking us our opinions and i think that that gave us both a strong acumen for business because it's architecture is a lot of business problem solving and we got to be part of that at the dinner table um so i think that that has definitely trickled down or trickled up into who i am yeah i mean in, in, in your kids adam they are uh four and almost one uh Ooh, yeah so. perfect do yeah. not do not give them lincoln logs for any birthday <laughs> Well, you know, now they have, there's all these fancy like Lincoln logs, you know, with magnets and all that stuff. So Legos, they have, yeah. they have tons of that stuff, but yeah. you know, it's, it's so interesting because I interviewed Brian Dale as well, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Kurt Dale and it, him and his brother were kind of the same way, but then they both turned out to be architects and, mm -hmm. you know, they did they get away from it. But, yeah. um, you know, and I think, you know, to run a successful firm, it seems like you, you almost have to have a pretty successful relationship and to see that modeled from your parents, like that tight knit thing also had to be a, a pretty profound thing. I mean, I think, you know, what I keep hearing about, about Nan is just, um, just the, just the respect that you have in the community from everybody and, and the, the strong like mentoring you do. And, and, um, and it just seems to kind of emit from you. Yeah. Uh, and so what, what's, what's your feeling been about like, the community here in Denver and, and, and ways that you've plugged in and, and mentored and connected? You know, it's interesting because I really, I really think a mentoring is kind of a two-way street. Like there's been um, someone in our office who has mentored me over the years. She's 25 years, 30 years younger than I. And so it really does go both ways. She has amazing organizational skills and um, technological skills and she's really patient so, so that to me is such a wonderful quality in a mentor 
Um, what I do want to see and what I do really feel passionate about in terms of the AIA Colorado community is that we need to be better business leaders. Mm. If we can come to the table with great ideas, that's one thing, but we need to be able to run good businesses as well. So we have to first know that we can keep our staffs fed and, and operational and, and uh, well considered and, and then we can be great architects. So that's, that's really kind of my passion right now too, as far as AIA Colorado goes. And we we're trying to get the skills out there through our business of architecture knowledge community oh, right. yeah. to, for people to kind of latch on to some of those things. So whether people need better skills in terms of how to market, how to present in front of an audience, to how to put together basic financials, how to market in a, in a pandemic, you know, those are all how we share our experiences. I think as architects, we are really bad at just calling each other up and saying, hey, Adam, you know, I know that you've been working on this and such a project. How did you handle this client or how did you handle this situation? There's so much knowledge for us to share. We just are <laughs> too dang private about it or I don't know what we are. Right. Th this whole podcast is just a really selfish way for me to just try to gather as much information from everybody else as possible. <laughs> that, that's the whole goal of it. Just how can I be successful like Nan Anderson? And, uh, no, yeah, it's, but... it's very noble. I really appreciate you doing this because, you know, if we're talking in, in the springtime of holding a, a kind of principles connect because anytime I talk to another principal, I, I'll say, well, you know, what have you been up to recently? Well, I called Bill Moon over at Triba and he and I talked for an hour just about business stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that really makes us better practitioners as, as well. So we need to share our, our successes and our failures as a community. We're just, I, I would love to see more of that. Yeah. Yeah, it also helps you true. keep tabs on your industry because yep. you're, if you're not part of the schooling of the people coming into your industry, then there's not opportunity to give feedback about what skills are lacking or like, yep. if, you, if you're not communicating around firms, you can't see any trends in how architects are coming into the industry oh, absolutely. and what they need and right. might just be tiny little tweaks if you can see patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's, yeah, such a, there's, yeah, there's such a database, right? I mean, you know, I moved here five years ago and knew five, 10 firms, right? But mm -hmm. it's like, I've got a list of 75 people to interview so far, and that's scratching wow. the surface, right? And it's, wow. uh, and so, yeah, there's just so many people doing so, so such good stuff out there that it's hard to see it. And I'm always surprised kind of the people who don't know each other, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> like, you're, you're both doing this great work. Why, why don't you know this person? But um, <laughs> So, yeah. 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 Well, so we're going to end on, on what, what I like to hear is, do you, do you have, what would be your lowest moment in your career? And what it, have you had a, a mountaintop moment with the highest? What's the high and the low? Uh, definitely it has to do with certain projects, right? Or is there anyone who said anything other than that? No, actually, I, I haven't. I, I've, I've really been looking for like a really horrible story where something all goes wrong, but I haven't got a really good one yet, but. Oh, uh, yeah. Do it, Ma. Win that competition. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Okay. Okay. Here it, here it is. So um, with all the work that we've done in national parks, there was a particular project where we had really romanced a client. It was, um, it was Zantera. They do a lot of parks and sessions within national parks around the country. It's, it's uh, Philip Anschutz's company. And we had done absolutely everything we could to really get to, to help this particular client. And then they turned and decided that, that uh, to hire a different architect for a really big signature project that they have since built in the Grand Canyon. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow. Are you kidding me? It all came down to four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> but you know, you just have to get over those moments and know that, as one of my good landscape architectural friends says, just be patient, man. 
I've never been long on patience. Yeah. Those, those times are hard to take for sure. The mountaintop moments are just the feeling of, uh, of wonderful community when something you, as small as a log cabin, as large as a mini glacier hotel or a, a cultural heritage center that we're working on down in Grand Canyon, when everyone can stand at the end of the day, hold hands and say, yes, we did this together and we created something that will endure. Yeah. That's, that's what really floats my boat. Fantastic. Well, this has been great. This is, you've, you've lived up to all the hype. This has been a great conversation and thank you. Well, thank you, Adam. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Look yeah. forward to hearing more about you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, yeah. take care. You too. See ya. Bye. Bye.